So the first reading is taken from Genesis chapter 30 and it's verses 25 to 43 and you'll find it on page 33 of the Pew Bibles. (laughs) After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so that I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, please stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, Name your wages and I will pay them. Jacob said to him, You know how I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you, he asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-coloured lamb and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future whenever you check on the wages you've paid me. Any goat in my possession that's not speckled or spotted or any lamb that's not dark-coloured will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. That same day he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, and all the dark-coloured lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. Jacob, however, took fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peel branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they mated in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-coloured animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So the next chunk of the Genesis reading is Genesis chapter 31, verses 1 to 21, which can be found on page 33 in the Pew Bibles. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying... Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not as it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, 
but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled one will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah replied, Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and to our children. So do whatever God has told you. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Pavan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the river Euphrates, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. So the reading continues from uh, verse 22 of chapter 31 of Genesis. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him, and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You've deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so that I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You've done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's household. But why did you steal my God's? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. 
In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods gods, and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime, he asked Laban. How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Now that you've searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. I've been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night, and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Laban answered Jacob, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine, or about the children they've borne? Come now. Let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jigar Sahadutha, and Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called Galid. It was also called Mizpah because he said, May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you ill-treat my daughters, or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, Here is this heap, and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to to your side to harm you, and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning... Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home.
Well read to our readers and well listened to all of us. I am Jack and it is good to be with you here tonight as we get into the Word of God once again. For the cricket fans out there, I hope that 20 minutes of listening to This Australian won't be too much to bear after the week that has been. But Nick introduced me last week as someone who's not interested in sport anyway, so I'm happy to say no more about it and we can move on. We have been following the story of Jacob in the Bible for a few weeks now and I think it's fair to say we have seen a few strange stories along the way. The Bible can be quite weird, wild at times, but surely what we have read tonight has got to be one of the strangest stories in Genesis so far. As we read that first passage, particularly at the end of Genesis 30, what were you thinking? As we heard about speckled sheep and spotted lambs and striped branches, what on earth is going on here? What has God got to say to us in the 21st century through this. Maybe you're tempted to think, all right, that's enough Bible for one day. It's, it's just, it's too much. It's a little strange. Surely there's got to be a, an easier way to get to know God. Let's, you know, at least jump forward to the New Testament where things make a little more sense. There we can go and figure out what life's all about. It is true. Sometimes the Word of God is foreign to us. We wrestle with it and what it might mean for us. But the plus side there is that this is a book that is full of surprises. It stretches us, forces us to think. And that makes sense because this book comes from a God who is full of surprises. And I hope by the end of our time tonight, we might see how this admittedly weird story shows us something wonderful about our surprising God. A God who is truly unique. There is no one in the world who compares to him. No one who shows such kindness as him. Truly, he is a God with no rivals. And as we work through Genesis 30 and 31 today, it was a big reading. Uh, We're not going to work verse by verse through the whole passage, but sometimes it is important to take a big chunk because in stories like this, it's sometimes only when you zoom out and see the big picture that you really understand what God is telling us through all of this. So instead of going verse by verse, I really just want to draw out two main lessons from the words we've read tonight. Firstly, in chapter 30, we see how Jacob fleeces Laban... And that shows us the surprising scandal of God's grace. And then chapter 31, where Jacob flees from Laban, we hear about the foolishness of God's rivals. So let's get into that. First, chapter 30, Jacob fleeces Laban and the scandal of God's grace. At this point in the story, Jacob has now spent 14 years slaving away as a shepherd for his uncle Laban in exchange for marrying his two daughters, Rachel and Leah. And that time is done, two lots of seven years, and Jacob says, enough is enough, it is time to leave Laban and go home, back to Canaan. Now, unfortunately for Jacob, crafty old uncle Laban is not particularly keen to see his top shepherd leave, so he persuades Jacob to stay on. But if Jacob has learned one thing over all these years, it is that Laban is never to be trusted. So Jacob shrewdly asks to be paid in a way that's going to make it hard for Laban to cheat him out of his wages. Verse 32, Jacob says, Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-coloured lamb, every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages, and my honesty will testify for me in the future whenever you check on the wages you have paid me. So most of Laban's sheep would have been pure white, as as we know today as well. But Jacob's asking for all the ones that are a little bit off, all the ones that are a little bit discoloured, a little bit speckled and spotted. 
In part, Jacob is showing his humility here. He's saying he just wants this small percentage of the flock, and even then, he wants the ones that are a bit mottled, the ones that are a bit second-rate. He's happy with the leftovers. But more to the point, this is going to be a transaction which is easily verified, if you like. Just by looking, everyone's going to know. Oh, yeah, you can just you cast your eyes over it, and you can see, yeah, there's the spotted sheep. Those are Jacob's. That's just the way it should be. In our terms, it'd be a little bit like Jacob's working in the family shop, and he says, look, I just want to be paid with all of the five-pound notes that come through the till. Everything else can be yours, all the big ones, big denominations, you keep them, just a small change I'm happy to take. So at the end of the day, Laban can open up his wallet and say, yep, there's all the fives, very clear, fair enough, if there were any in this day and age when we all pay cashless, but you get what I mean. Surely Laban is not going to be able to cheat Jacob when the terms are that clear. That's what Jacob's trying to set up here. And enthusiastically, Laban agrees, because he is crafty, and he's already spotted the loophole to be able to exploit Jacob. So verse 35, we read, That same day he, Laban, removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all the ones that had a bit of white on them, and all the dark-coloured lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. So Laban, as soon as they struck the deal, he instantly takes all the spotted animals, all of Jacob's ones, and sends them far away from Jacob. And he says, Okay, here, you have the all-white flock. Sure. Keep all the speckled ones that you like from them. In other words, Laban's saying, Jacob is getting nothing now. And Jacob won't even be able to breed any spotted sheep in the years to come. These ancient farmers may not have had our understanding of biology, but as far as they're concerned, if you breed all white sheep, you're going to get all white sheep. Jacob's got nothing, he'll continue to have nothing, and once again, crafty old Laban seems to have the upper hand. But this time, Jacob has a plan. And to us, it seems like such a strange plan. From verse 37, Jacob gets some branches and he strips away some of the bark to make them striped and streaked, just like the sheep he wants to breed. And he sets up these branches so the sheep will be looking directly at them while they are mating. And what do you know? When the lambs are eventually born, they come out striped and spotted, just like the sticks which are stuck in the ground. And as the story goes on, it seems to get more wild. Jacob uses this neat little trick over the next six years to breed himself this big, strong flock of striped and speckled sheep. And in this way, Jacob becomes rich. That's the point, really, where the chapter ends, verse 43. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. And we hear a story like that and we sort of think, what... We know that sticks shouldn't change the colour of a baby animal. That's not how genetics works. If you want to test the experiment yourself with some sticks and some guinea pigs or something, I don't know, I I expect you will find the stick trick fairly ineffective. (laughs) Is the Bible really asking us to believe that the magic stick stunt somehow worked? If you are a bit sceptical at heart, then a story like this might just confirm your suspicion that the Bible is just this collection of superstitious folk stories and primitive fairy tales. Well, before we conclude that, it's worth noting that the writer of the book of Genesis did not expect Jacob's scheme to work on its own either. Because in the next chapter, you hear Jacob telling Rachel and Leah, narrating what's happened before, and he says, chapter 31, verse 9, So God has taken away your father's livestock, that's Laban's flocks, and has given them to me. God's done it. Jacob's success in the end is not attributed to the branches, but to God. He doesn't end up with this huge flock because his magic sticks were somehow magical in their own right. 
It's because God decided that this was the way he was going to bless Jacob. This God is powerful enough to make all white sheep miraculously give birth to spotted lambs if he wants. And ordinary sticks happen to be the means by which this extraordinary God decides to act. That God would bless something even as absurd as the stick trick shows us just how completely God is on Jacob's side. When Laban tries to manipulate the situation and rob Jacob of his wages, Jacob can do nothing but resort to this desperate act of superstition, and yet God blesses that act and shows that he is against Laban by turning Laban's flocks and all of his wealth over to Jacob. This is how God blesses Jacob big time. And if you've been following the story so far, then that fact in itself may come as a surprise. Because remember who Jacob is. He is the deceiver. He's the scoundrel who exploited his brother Esau, who deceived his father Isaac, who tore his family apart and ran away to another country. He's Jacob who didn't care at all as Rachel and Leah fought their bitter competition to see who could have the most children. Maybe you've enjoyed the way that Laban messes Jacob around. Surely Jacob is getting what he deserves. But God looks at the situation and he blesses Jacob beyond measure. In some ways, it just doesn't seem fair. This is where we arrive at the scandal of God's grace. Because it is shocking. God treats Jacob far better than he deserves. Fundamentally, at heart, Jacob is no different to Laban. They're they're cut from the same cloth. They're two deceivers. Most of the time, Laban happens to be a better one. And yet God is against Laban, lavishing his blessings upon Jacob instead. Why? Because he does. Because he is gracious. Because he is kind. And because he has made promises to Jacob and Jacob's family, and he is committed to them. He promised Jacob, I will not leave you until I have fulfilled the purpose I am working out in you. If you're here listening tonight and you don't yet know this God, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, maybe you know that you have this checkered past, like Jacob does. You know you've made mistakes in life. You know how you've let people down. It's easy to think that if God's got people who he's looking out for, surely you're not one of them. God would not accept someone like you, surely? If that's what you think in your heart of hearts, then please hear that nothing could be further from the truth. God is in the business of blessing scoundrels. His son, the Lord Jesus, came not for the righteous, not for people who have it all together and know how good they are. He came for sinners. This is a God who, who, who showers grace far beyond what any of us deserve. Don't you want to come and get to know this God and experience the wonders of his scandalous grace? And for you who do know Jesus, a story like this shows us that we can never let ourselves think that anyone is too far gone to be called back to God. Maybe like me, you find it easy to think, oh, that person over there so wrapped up in the things of this world and their sinful life, a person who, who hates the church so much, There's no way that someone like that's going to turn up on our doorstep and want to find out more. And if they did, surely they don't deserve it. For me, it's it's hard for me to imagine someone like my dad 
becoming a Christian. My dad is one of the, the most militant atheists out there you might ever meet, and he's not even happy just to agree to disagree. If he has anything for, for the church, it is scorn. He loves a good sarcastic dig at me who, who trusts in the great sky daddy up there. Someone like my dad does not deserve the kindness and grace of God. But at the end of the day, neither do I. And neither do you. Neither did Jacob. But give thanks to God that he is gracious. And let's keep pointing people, even the most unlikely people, to the grace of God. Who's the last person who you think would ever come to church if you invited them or would be keen to sit down and read some of the Bible with, them, with you if you asked them? Who's the last person who might say yes to that? Why not ask? They might say no. They might say yes. Because we have a God who is in the business of saving people in the most surprising ways. And you yourself might be surprised just how gracious our God is. We've seen how Jacob fleeced Laban, and that shows us the scandal of God's grace. Let's move into chapter 31, where Jacob flees from Laban, and here we hear about the foolishness of God's rivals. At this point, six more years have gone by in the land of Haran, and despite Laban's best efforts, his flocks have been handed over to Jacob by this breeding scheme. And Jacob is clue. He realizes that Laban is not particularly happy about how this has gone. And God tells Jacob, it is time to go home. But before he leaves with his family, there is still time for two last deceptions in Haran. Firstly, by Rachel. Have a look down at chapter 31 and verse 19. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. And we're introduced here to these little god figurines that Laban has. These idols made of stone or wood. We don't know exactly what, but... These figures which are the object of Laban's worship, his devotion. And Rachel gets back at her scheming father who substituted Leah for her in what should have been her wedding. Rachel gets back at him by stealing away something of supreme value to Laban. Deception number one. The second is in the next verse with Jacob, verse 20. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him he was running away. Now, translation's obscured a little bit there, but it's the same word in both those verses. Just as Rachel stole Laban's God, so Jacob steals away from Laban in secret. He doesn't even give him the chance to say goodbye. And so we have Jacob running away with his family and his livestock, everything he's got, making a beeline for the promised land of Canaan. But Jacob's absence does not go unnoticed for long. And when Laban finds out that Jacob has ghosted him, he sets out in hot pursuit. Now, I know for me and my family of five, I'm amazed how long it can take us to get out the door sometimes. I was here at church this morning, and I was leading the service and only managed to get here by about two minutes before we started. So many bags to pack and shoes to put on, seatbelts to do up. Well, you can imagine Jacob with his family of 17 at this point, they're probably not able to move particularly quickly on this journey. Twelve primary school-aged children coming along for the ride at this point as well. Presumably, Laban is able to move a lot faster. And very quickly, he overtakes Jacob, catches up in the land of Gilead, just outside the promised land. And at this point, something very striking happens. Because the God of Jacob appears once again, but this time not to speak to Jacob. This time he has a word for Laban. Verse 24 of chapter 31. Verse 24. 
Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. God warns Laban. He says, Laban, watch yourself. Be very careful what you say. And when Laban does finally meet Jacob, he confronts him and he is furious that Jacob has stolen away with his daughters and his grandchildren. But you know what he's most angry about? It's what Rachel has stolen. Verse 30, how Laban finishes this torrent of objection. Laban finishes, Now you've gone off because you long to return to your father's household, but why did you steal my gods? Well, Jacob knows he didn't steal Laban's gods, so he invites Laban to search everything he has, come and have a look, and he emphatically declares his innocence with what ends up being a very rash vow in verse 32. But if you find anyone who has your gods here, that person shall not live. And we think, oh dear, Jacob doesn't know that his beloved wife Rachel is the one who took the gods. And then the narrative slows right down, and it's almost like the the camera goes into this nail-biting slow motion. Laban searches Jacob's tent, and then he searches Leah's tent, and then he searches Bilhah's tent, and then he searches Zilpah's tent, and finally he comes to Rachel's tent, and we know where the gods are. We're on the edge of our seats. Rachel's life is on the line. And at the last minute, Rachel seemingly has this stroke of genius. She puts the idols in her saddlebag, she sits on them, and then when Laban comes in, verse 35, Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my Lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So Laban searched, but could not find the household gods. Of course, given the ancient cultural taboo around menstruation, it would be completely inappropriate for Laban's search to go any further. And we want to ask, is Rachel telling the truth here? Is this God's providential timing? Or is this some quick thinking from the daughter of the master deceiver who shows she can deceive with the best of them? We don't know. The narrative doesn't tell us. Surely Laban would have been a little suspicious about Rachel's rather convenient excuse. But even Rachel's claim is enough to stop the search. And so the others go undiscovered. Rachel is saved. Laban's accusation cannot be proven. And so Jacob gets to explode at Laban in turn. By this point, you feel the weight of his... His weariness. Jacob has suffered through these 20 long years, two decades being pushed around and exploited by Laban's deceitful schemes. And he knows that he is in the right, that God is on his side. Verse 42, Jacob finishes, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. Jacob can look back at the end and know that God has been with him every step of the way through those 20 years, protecting him, blessing him, even through the hard times. And the dream that God gave to Laban is the final verdict. God saying this long contest between Laban and Jacob is over. God has made clear to everyone. He is on Jacob's side. And that is a force that Laban cannot hope to contend against. So he backs down. And the story ends with Laban and Jacob making a covenant, a treaty. They, they sign this non-aggression pact. They agree not to make any further moves against one another. In effect, they agree to disagree. Laban retreats, kisses his daughters and their children goodbye, and he leaves. And that's it. At long last, this story's chief antagonist is gone, and Jacob is finally free from Laban's treacherous schemes. He's been robbed of 20 years of his life, but at last, the punishment has come to an end. 
Now, there's a lot of story there, and it's important for us to, to come to the end and, and ask, what is the point? What, what do we learn from all of this? We've seen how Jacob won, but did you notice how Jacob won this victory? In the end, it didn't happen because Jacob was sneakier than Laban. He wasn't able to sneak away and outrun him. It didn't happen because Jacob was stronger than Laban. When Laban caught up with Jacob, he came with more than enough force to overpower him. The only reason Jacob won was because his God was infinitely stronger than the little wooden figurines sitting in Rachel's tent. And there's this theme that runs through these last couple of chapters of Genesis about the, the uselessness of pagan superstition and folklore and idol worship. You might remember in the previous passage last week, Genesis chapter 30, Rachel tries this stunt with some mandrakes, with this supposed magical aphrodisiac fruit. It doesn't work, but it's God who gives Rachel a child. Jacob has the magic sheep sticks, but they don't work in their own power. It's God who gives him the flock. And that theme reaches this climax here, where Laban's precious little God statues are shown to be just utterly impotent. Jacob's God protects him. Laban's gods can't even protect themselves from being stolen. Jacob's God is at work, speaking, warning, sending dreams. Laban's gods are trapped in a saddlebag while Rachel sits on them. And these superstitious pagan alternatives of God are made to look laughable. Genesis makes a mockery of them. And the, the first readers of this book would have, would have laughed at these ineffective little statues. God certainly saves Jacob from Laban in this passage, but he does far more than that. He shows Jacob that he is the only God worth knowing. God has no rivals. That is the point for us to take away here. It's a chapter that mocks idolatry, and we need to know that idolatry is more than just worshipping statues. It's not less than that, but it is more. In the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul refers to greed as idolatry. Greed means loving money, honouring it above all other goods, devoting ourselves to it, in other words, worshipping it. Idolatry means devoting yourself to anything more than you are devoted to God. And this is one of the ways that we today still wrestle with God. We struggle with bowing down before things to pretend to be rivals to the one true and living God. For modern Westerners, literal literal statues may not be our issue, but for many Christians today, they are an issue. For people who come from other cultures, there is a genuine wrestle with other gods or those who purport to be gods. Maybe that's you here tonight. Maybe you like the idea of Jesus, but you're still caught up in some other tradition. Maybe your family has the household shrine for worshipping idols or worshipping ancestors at the end of the table. Maybe as a Christian, you wrestle with how do you relate to your family who, who pressure you and expect you to participate in that still? And the question of whether those objects of worship are really as powerless as Genesis 31 suggests has to factor in to how you wrestle with an issue like that. For many of us, that's not our particular struggle. Perhaps the idolatry question is best framed for you as, what is it that you pour yourself into? What is it that captures your time and effort and longings, your hopes, What is the thing that you just can't imagine life without? What is the basket you're tempted to put all your eggs into? For some of us, it might be the the career, the respect and admiration of the peers and colleagues, 
our self-image, what friends think of us. To be frank, my greatest personal struggle in this area is as a parent. I adore my kids, and it is so easy to let my world revolve around them, to make them the centre of every decision and making every opportunity for them, whatever I can do to give them the good life, that is the ultimate end in my life. It's easy to idolise even my children. Whatever your idol may be, Genesis 31 cuts through all of that and says to us that we are fools to give our ultimate devotion to anyone other than the one true living God. Everything else in this world is ultimately like Laban's little statues, powerless to deliver on those promises. There is only one God worth knowing. Only the God who spoke to Jacob can bring us lasting joy and satisfaction. Only the God who has spoken to us in Jesus can deliver us from our troubles. I remember just a couple of years ago, during the height of the pandemic, being prone to idolizing the normality of life before everything that happened. And it was easy to focus my longing on the lifting of lockdowns and the easing of restrictions and the wish for a vaccine and the promise of life returning to some semblance of normality. And for most people, not all, but for most of us, that's where we are, right? We're back at normal. We moved on to face what? Just another round of existential challenges. War in Europe and cost of living emergencies. The list never ends. Because normal in our world is this broken world of sin and death that can never support the weight of the hopes we put on it. We are fools to put our longings in this world. Ultimately only the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ can satisfy the longings that we have. As we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, let us be those who have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. He is the God of scandalous grace. He is the God who has no true rivals. So let's turn back to him. And keep turning back to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the one true living God. There is no one in heaven like you. No one compares to you. Father, your word sometimes is so strange and foreign to us. But we thank you that you have shown us that you are far more surprising than we have ever imagined that you treat us far better than we deserve, that you are far greater than anything else in this world that dares to compare with you. So we pray that you would grip our hearts, that you would be the one object of devotion and worship in our lives, that the Lord Jesus would reign supreme in us. This we pray in his name. Amen.